0: Chapter Two. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, You should know that we are in the middle of a series on Genesis one through three. We're preaching through the first three books of the Bible, with the idea being that hopefully we can be better informed as to how God created the world and how He designed us. And certainly, our prayer is that anytime we open up the Bible, that we would be able to faithfully teach what God says. We do believe that the Bible is the Word of God. That's why we take books of the Bible. Or portions of books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. So this morning, that means we are in Genesis chapter 2. Let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning in the midst of life's distractions, in the midst of even maybe distractions going on in our own hearts this morning. We certainly pray that you would speak to us loudly and clearly through your word. Lord, we know that your word is breathed out by you, it's profitable, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide between our soul and spirit. Lord, we pray that your, your word would indeed divide us this morning, that it would open us up and that we would have a better understanding of who you are after we look at your word. We pray that we'd also have a better understanding of who we are and what we need in terms of just depending upon you. So, Lord, we are completely dependent upon you. We are happy to acknowledge that this morning. and We are praying that you would work in a powerful way through the preaching of your word this morning. Please, Lord... Give us your grace and help us to see your word clearly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, on May 22nd of 2011, an EF5 tornado hit Joplin, Missouri. With speeds reaching excess of 200 miles per hour, the tornado was absolutely devastating. 4,400 homes were destroyed, another 3,800 significantly damaged. Nearly a third of the city, a city of 50,000 people, was ravaged by the tornado. Most tragically, 161 people died, more than 1,300 injured. It was a tornado of epic proportions. To this day, it's still considered the costliest tornado in the United States history, with damages estimated to be over $3 billion. The pictures from the aftermath of the tornado are overwhelming and heartbreaking at the same time. In fact, I thought it might be helpful to show some of the pictures this morning. This is one of the more iconic pictures. where you can see the devastation that had come and swept through Joplin. Another is like it. I'm channeling my inner this morning. Hopefully this works. There we go. So we have a second picture of just the absolute total chaos that happened when this tornado ripped through Joplin. You may remember it a little over 12 years ago now, or almost 12 years ago now. As much as those two pictures tell the tale, though, and obviously a picture like this does tell a tale, to understand the true effects of the devastation, I think it's sometimes helpful to know what things look like beforehand. So to that end, I'm going to show you a picture of East 24th Street in Joplin before the tornado, All right, so this is is a picture before the tornado came through, and the next picture I'm going to show you is the exact same location after the tornado. Obviously, you can tell there's just widespread devastation, but as much as it's helpful to see a picture like that and be able to understand the devastation, perhaps it's best to see them side by side. So this picture on the left of the picture you see the baseball fields and everything over here this is before the tornado and then on the right of the picture you have the exact same location after the tornado came through you can understand the devastation when you see them side by side in fact i would say this sometimes it's hard to know how devastating something is unless you know what it looked like beforehand in the case of joplin the before pictures certainly help us understand the truly destructive nature of the tornado but more than that for residents of joplin those before pictures also had to be useful in helping them to think about what rebuilding looks like. When all you see is devastation, remembering what things look like before the devastation allows you to have a better understanding of what things ought to look like and what they might one day look like again. And actually, I think that's the point of contact with our passage today. I'm not talking about Joplin this morning to be flippant because I want to show some crazy pictures. I fully recognize the devastation in these pictures is real. For people in Joplin, their lives were affected in just awful ways. So I'm not showing these pictures to try to get your attention this morning. Rather, I think these pictures, and in particular, the before and after pictures, a picture like this one, serve as a powerful visual of what we see happening in Genesis 2 and 3. In Genesis 3, which we're headed towards here in a couple weeks, there's an event of cataclysmic devastation. Sin enters the world and it destroys everything. In fact, as devastating as the Joplin tornado was, the event in Genesis 3 is infinitely more destructive. But when sin entered the world, it didn't disaffect one point at one, or excuse me, one town at one point in history. It affected every person in every place on the planet since. Nothing has been unaffected by the devastation of sin. And so when we look at the world now, all we see is the after picture. We see the devastation. Now, because Jesus has come and his kingdom has invaded, there's evidence of rebuilding. Praise God for that. But the devastation is still widespread. And that's where the before picture becomes important. The before picture helps us understand the way things were originally designed and the way that things might one day be again. And in Genesis 2, what I'm going to argue this morning is we have that before picture. We have a picture of what the world was like before sin ruined everything. Or to put it in visual terms we had up just a second ago, If the picture on the right of the devastation is Genesis 3. The picture of the before is Genesis 2. This is what it looked like before everything was ruined. And what I'm going to argue this morning is that studying the picture of the before helps us to understand the way things are supposed to be and the way maybe things will be one day again. So I said, let's get to it then. Let's get to the before picture. And let's pray that in doing so, we can better understand God's original and good design and thus be better equipped to live in light of that design. So Genesis 2, 15 to 17. If you want to stand here out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Again, in Genesis 3, we have all this devastation. But in Genesis 2, we have the before picture, and that's what we're reading this morning, Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17. Word of God says this, beginning in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's our passage this morning. You can be seated. So the passage we just read, we learn what man was called to do in the garden, verse 15, and we also see the first command in all of Scripture, that's verses 16 and 17. And I think both of those pieces of information, both God's plan for mankind in the garden and the first command in all of Scripture, are helpful in allowing us to understand God's good design for the world. And again, that design, as we discussed already this morning, as seen in Genesis 2, is part of the before picture. To state the obvious, Genesis 2 takes place before Genesis 3. And so what we have in Genesis 2 is the calm before the storm. It's God's good design for the world before sin affected everything. And understanding that design can help us understand more about God, more about the world he's created, and more about the way that things ought to be and one day will be again. So having said that, I think there are two key things to point out about God's good design this morning. And both of them are related to what we see in verse 15 and then verses 16 and 17. So the first key thing we see as it relates to God's good design is this, that work is part of God's good design. Work is part of God's good design. When I was a student at the University of Northern Iowa, I worked for a couple of semesters as a part-time car washer and package deliverer for the university. The university had a fleet of cars that professors or other university officials would check out. And then my job, along with several other students, was to make sure that those cars were cleaned and they were vacuumed and they were ready for the next user. We also delivered packages on campus. I'm not sure how those two things went together, but they did. Nevertheless, working in the car cleaning department probably took the bulk of my time, and it was an interesting work experience largely because of my coworkers. While there were several part-time student workers there like me, there were also a group of at least three and I think maybe four full-time mechanics that were changing oil on cars and making sure that the cars were maintained so that they could keep the fleet running. And those mechanics were some pretty unique guys. In particular, I think of two of the guys named Steve and Cliff, Both of them gave off a grumpy, middle-aged guy vibe. You've probably met people like that before. So they were a little bit intimidating to be around. But they were nice enough to me. I stayed out of their way, so we got along fine. And for the most part, I think they were probably pretty good at their job. They showed up day after day. It seems like the cars kept running, so I think they were doing a good job. But the thing you need to understand about them is they both seem to genuinely hate their job. They seem to genuinely hate their job. I can remember several conversations where they were actively counting down the days until they could retire, And it's not like they were that close to retirement. Both of them had at least 10 years to go before they could retire. But in their minds, the countdown was on. Because for them, work was miserable. Now listen, I get it. As Genesis 3 will make clear, work on this side of the fall after sin entered the world is oftentimes difficult and just plain challenging. We deal with thorns and thistles. We deal with difficult people. Stuff breaks. Things go wrong. And sometimes there are problems that can't be fixed. To use language of Genesis 3, by the sweat of our brow, we eat bread. Work can be strenuous and exhausting and stressful. But hear this, work itself is not the problem. In fact, work, as we see here in Genesis 2, before the devastation was part of God's good design. Look again at verse 15. Verse 15, God gives this I guess, task, if you will, to mankind, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, notice here in verse 15, God does not put man in the garden so that he can relax and drink lemonade and take a lot of naps. Now, there's nothing wrong with relaxing or drinking lemonade or taking naps. In fact, I would commend them to you in moderation. But the point is, God put man in the garden to work it and keep it. Adam did not sit around all day eating ice cream sandwiches and watching otters play in the river. He was working the garden. He was keeping the garden in good condition. And in fact, probably looking for ways to cultivate things and make them better. And to be sure, this work had to be incredibly enjoyable. He wasn't dealing with thorns and thistles. He wasn't dealing with harsh environmental conditions. He wasn't dealing with nasty people. He wasn't even dealing with his own sin at this point. So I think we have to admit that Adam working in the garden in Genesis 2 is completely different than working at the University of Northern Iowa as a mechanic. Adam was not working in a fallen world. He was working in the very good garden before everything went wrong. But notably, and this is worth noting, he was working. Work was part of God's design from the beginning. The fact that we have to work is not a sign of the fall. Now the fact that work is hard is a sign of the fall, but work itself is not bad. Contrary to how my coworkers at the University of Northern Iowa may have felt, work is part of God's good design for us. I think that has two implications for us this morning. Implication number one, we should not begrudge work, but rather we should see it as part of God's good design for us. Now again, I completely understand why Steve and Cliff did not like work, because they had to deal with messy people and with things that were breaking. But work was not the problem. Sin was the problem. Sin is what makes work hard and messy, but work itself is part of God's design. Throughout the Old and New Testament, the Bible stresses the importance of working hard. It also stresses the importance of working hard for the right reason, namely that we are to work for the glory of the King. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What made work different in the garden is not just that they weren't dealing with the effects of the sin, although obviously that was significant, but what also made work different in the garden is they clearly knew who they were working for. There was no human boss in the garden. They weren't trying to climb some corporate ladder. Adam was working and keeping the garden for God, not because God needed him to work, by the way, but because God saw work as a good thing. Listen, we cannot change the fact that we live in a broken world and thus Work will be difficult. But what we can do is remember who we are working for. To use a phrase that I've used before, it's not what you do that matters, it's who you do it for. When it comes to work, the most important thing about you is not that you're a teacher or a farmer or a factory worker or a stay-at-home mom or a business person or a nurse or fill in the blank with any other profession. The most important thing about you is who are you working for? Are you working for yourself Are you working for a human boss or more hopefully, are you working for the king? In the garden, before the fall, Adam knew that he was working for God. And I think it's imperative that we recover that sense of purpose as it relates to our own work. But listen, it's easy to lose sight of that purpose, is it not? Both in the big and small things, we can lose sight of our perspective. or We can lose the perspective of who we are working for. To give an example on the small side, with Tanya's health being what it has been the last several months, and e- even in recent weeks with her making trips to Mayo, I've realized how much work she does around the house to keep things going that I didn't notice before. When she's gone, it seems like things just kind of fall apart. And with her out of the picture because she's been physically unable or physically gone, a lot of those tasks have started to fall on me. And what I've noticed about myself is that there are certain things that I don't mind doing in terms of picking up the slack. I don't mind laundry or dishes or or paying bills, those types of things. But there are also certain things I don't like doing at all. Cooking would be one. Deep cleaning, putting away decorations. And because I don't like doing some of those things, I don't do them or I don't do them very well. Case in point, I noticed earlier this week, I've noticed this for a while, but I saw earlier this week, our Christmas tree was still up. (laughs) Now, normally, Tanya has that baby down by mid-January at the latest. But since she's been gone or not feeling well, it's just been sitting there. And I'm just going to be honest with you guys, I didn't do anything about it. Now, I could rationalize that in my head. I could say it's a St. Patrick's Day tree this year. Or I could say we're just prepared for next year because at some point it flips, right? I would guess by August you could say we're just prepared ahead of time. But the truth is, the reason why I didn't put it away is I don't like putting away Christmas decorations. I don't like decorating much at all. But I was convicted by this passage this week that I've been thinking about that Christmas tree in the wrong way. It's not about what I like to do or even what I'm good at. It's about who I'm doing it for. I'm doing it for the king. Now, my wife, too, in this case, also, but ultimately for the glory of God. God has given us the task of working and keeping the world in order and doing so for his glory. And so, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that the Christmas tree was a sign that I completely failed as a person. And listen, if your tree's still up, that's okay. But for me this week, I was convicted. I'd been thinking about that small task of work in the wrong way. And so this week, when Tanya's gone to Minnesota, I took down the tree. Now, I will say, I didn't enjoy it a ton. I'm just going to be honest. I imagined that taking down Christmas trees before the fall would have been a much more enjoyable experience. And I will also add this. When Tanya came home, she did have to move some things around. So my decorating eye is not the greatest. But I will say this. It was refreshing for me to remember why do we do what we do? Why do we work? Whether it be work as vocation or work in our homes, it's because we're doing it for the glory of God. So listen, to return maybe to the big picture here for a second, I don't know what your work situation is. Maybe you love your job. Maybe you hate your job. Maybe you have a great boss. Maybe you have a terrible boss. Maybe you're your own boss, and maybe you're a great boss to yourself or a terrible boss to yourself. Maybe you get paid a lot for what you do. Maybe you don't get paid at all. Maybe you work at home, maybe you work in a big office complex, maybe you make widgets or send emails or change dirty diapers or plant crops or crunch numbers or sell things or teach kids or fix cars or feed cows or babysit or maybe something else. I don't know exactly what you do and I certainly don't know exactly how you feel about it, but what I do know is this, your ultimate task is to work for the King. To work in the garden and keep the garden implies that we are to maintain and improve the world around us through our labor. And again, keep in mind, what we're seeing here in Genesis 2 is before the fall. This is part of God's good design. We are working for the king. So whatever you do, no matter how mundane the task, do not lose sight of the ultimate purpose. Your work matters simply because of who you are working for. I think that's one implication of work being present in Genesis 2. We should not begrudge work, but rather we should see it as part of God's good design. Implication number two, I think we can assume that work will also be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. When we think of heaven, we tend to think of heaven as being somewhere up there. And if we're honest, I think we're all a little bit worried that heaven might be boring. As I've said before, I think some of us have this idea that heaven is going to be one really long church service. And we already think an hour is long enough, right? So the idea that we'd be doing this eternally feels really hard. But when we think about heaven in that way, I think we're missing the way Scripture talks about the glory that is to come. Heaven will not be up there in some ethereal space. When Christ returns, the new heavens and the new earth will be here. Furthermore, as evidenced in Genesis 2, work was not something that went into effect after the fall. It's part of God's good design from the beginning. From the beginning. So I suspect that we will also be doing work in the new heavens and the new earth. And if that sounds discouraging to you, you're thinking, I don't want to work, then I'll just say this. The reason it sounds discouraging to you is because you've never worked in a world without sin. And you've never worked in a world in which you are completely free from sin. Work is only hard and miserable because of our own sin and because of the sin that surrounds us. To be free from that sin... And to be free from the thorns and thistles of the world and to work freely and joyfully for him will be a glorious thing. Now, I have to admit, I don't know exactly what this will look like. It's hard to even imagine working in a world without sin because most of our work now entails counteracting the effects of sin. So I don't know what work in heaven will entail. I don't know what it exactly entailed in the garden. Maybe in glory I will discover the incredible joy of taking down Christmas trees in a non-fallen world. I kind of doubt it, because I doubt there'll be Christmas trees, but the point is, whatever we do, it will be for the glory of God, and it will bring intense joy and incredible satisfaction, because we are working for the king. Listen, work is part of God's good design. We see that here in Genesis 2. Before the fall, there was work. He tells Adam, and as a representative of mankind, Work the garden and keep it. So that's one thing we see here about God's good design before the fall. But there's a second piece of God's good design that we need to point out in Genesis 2, and that's this. Learning to trust God is also part of God's good design. Now let's read verses 16 and 17 here. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, before we talk about the prohibition of verse 17, which gets most of the attention, it's worth pointing out here that the overall tone of verses 16 and 17 is one of generosity and blessing and extravagant provision, which, by the way, is entirely consistent with the first two chapters of Genesis. Throughout the first two chapters, what we see again and again of God's character is that he wants to pour out blessing on his people. And we see that here again in verses 16 and 17. Now, we tend to focus on the prohibition of not eating from the one tree. But notice the generosity of God in verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now, as we learned earlier in chapter 2, the trees in the garden were pleasant to sight and good for food. So when God tells man in verse 16 to eat of every tree in the garden, he's not saying, go ahead and eat of all those terrible trees. The one good tree I'm keeping from you, the rest of them that are terrible you can have. That's not what he's saying. Because the trees that he gives were pleasant to the sight and good to the taste. He's giving them the best of the best. I can only imagine what this must have been like. When we lived in Amarillo, we had a peach tree in our backyard. It was pretty finicky and sensitive to weather. And we were not great peach tree farmers, whatever that looks like. So in the five years that we were there, we only got one good crop. But the year that we did get a crop, it was amazing. It's one thing to eat a peach at the store, and you can have a great peach at the store. It's another to eat it right off the tree. The juice and the flavor explode in your mouth. And if that's what peaches taste like from a less than healthy tree in a fallen world, I can only imagine what it must have been like to have tasted the fruit in the garden. For that matter, I can only imagine what it must have been like to look at the trees in the garden. When I was about 13, we went to Redwood National Park in California, And even as a 13-year-old boy, I thought those trees were awesome, which is something that a 13-year-old boy usually does not say about trees on a regular basis. So if that's what trees look like here, this side of the fall, what must they have looked like in the garden? For a tree to be pleasant to the sight, what would that even entail in a pre-fall world? It must have been staggeringly beautiful. And the trees that you could eat from must have been incredibly enjoyable. And the point I'm making here is that in his generosity, God gives man access to all of those trees, including even the tree of life. We tend to focus on the negative prohibition of verse 17, and I understand why, is that prohibition raises some serious questions. But do not neglect to see the extravagant provision of God. Think about it this way. If someone told me that they would take me out to any restaurant in Omaha, and I could get whatever I wanted, and they would be happy to pay for it, And the only place I could not go to is Texas Roadhouse. I might have questions about the Texas Roadhouse prohibition, but at the end of the day, it would seem my focus should be on their generosity. They'll take me any place and they will pay for me. It seems that my first instinct should not be to be like, why can't we go to Texas Roadhouse? My question should, or rather my instinct should be to give thanks. Thank you for being so generous. That's what we're seeing here in verses 16 and 17. There's extravagant generosity on God's part. You may eat of any tree of the garden. But that said, there is one exception. There is a negative prohibition here. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden except one. And that's what we see here in verse 17. Verse 17 says this, Genesis chapter 2. But of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I think there are two huge questions regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Question number one, what exactly is this tree? And question number two, why does God prohibit eating from this tree? Now, neither of those questions is easy to answer because the text doesn't give us a lot of clues. But having said that, if we take into account the immediate context of the passage and the overall teaching of Scripture, I think we can at least begin to take some educated guesses here. For example, as it relates to the first question, what is this tree? Author Justin Taylor helpfully walks through the contextual and scriptural evidence and summarizes his conclusion in this way. He says this, perhaps it's best to regard the knowledge of good and evil as something like mature or independent wisdom, insight, and discernment with the tree representing an improper way to attain it. It's that last line about the tree representing an improper way to attain it that I think helps us to start to put the puzzle pieces together. God wanted Adam and Eve to know the difference between good and evil, but he wanted them to learn that difference by trusting him and trusting him his word. To quote Bible scholar Franz Delich, the tree of knowledge was to lead man to the knowledge of good and evil. And according to the divine intention, this was to be attained through his not eating of its fruit. In other words, Delich is arguing that if Adam and Eve would have obeyed and not eaten of the fruit, they would have learned what is right and wrong. But they would have done it the right way by trusting God. At the end of the day, I think that's the purpose of this prohibition. It was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to trust that God knew what was best. And in trusting him, they would grow in their worldly, or excuse me, in their wisdom and in their discernment. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not bad in and of itself. It's not that the fruit was poisonous. The disobedience was the poison. The tree simply represented an opportunity for Adam and Eve to trust God. Would Adam and Eve trust that God knew what was best for wisdom and life, and thus follow God's command to not eat of the tree, or would they defy God's warning and try to take things into their own hands? Now sadly, we know the answer to that question. They ate of the forbidden fruit, and in doing so, they demonstrated their lack of trust in God. And as a result, they would indeed die, just as they were warned—an immediate spiritual death in which they would be cut off from God's presence, and an eventual physical death in which they would return to dust. At the end of the de- excuse me, at the end of the day, the tree was about trust. And in that, again, I think we learned something important: learning to trust God is part of God's good design. God did not tell Adam and Eve why they shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He just told them not to eat. And I think the reason for that is because it was never about the tree. And it was always about trusting God. Learning to trust God is part of God's good design for our joy. We don't need all the answers, but we do need to learn he can be trusted. Let's be honest here. God usually does not let us know why he does what he does. Why did your loved one die? Why did your body break down? Why is someone that you love sick? Why did that relationship that you cherish crumble despite your best intentions? The truth is we usually don't know the answers. We could speculate about what God is doing, but most of the time we're left to wander in the dark. But what if that wandering in the dark is part of the point? What if one of the points of suffering and difficulty is drawing us into deeper trust and dependence on God? A couple of months ago when we were at Mayo, a friend of mine sent me an article entitled The Long and Lingering Tale of Suffering. The article was about the ongoing challenges of suffering. And the whole article was helpful for me, but one section stuck out. So I'm just going to quote it at length here. The article said this, God doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. We may feel alone, but we aren't. He's leading us somewhere. The journey is about deepening our dependence on him. Why? Because dependence is the promised land. Hear that clearly. A life of dependence is the truest, most real hope in our lives. Our hope is in him, not some location outside of difficulty. In other words, trusting God is the goal. It's the promised land. Now, this is hard, isn't it? Because if I'm honest, what I really want in my case, is for God to heal both my wife and son. And if that can't happen, what I would like to know is why is he doing what he's doing? But I'm slowly coming to the realization that healing and or getting answers for my questions are not the end goal. Now, perhaps God will bring healing. Perhaps we'll even start to see some of the reasons. We've already seen some. Maybe he'll give us more. But the end goal is not healing. The end goal is not getting my question answered. The end goal is trusting God. And that means sometimes we have to follow him in the dark. We have to admit, Lord, we don't know what you're doing, but I know you can be trusted, so I will submit to you. Listen, trusting God is not just a necessity in a broken world. As evidenced by Genesis 2, it's part of God's good design from the beginning. The question is, though, will we trust him? Will you trust that his commands are good, even when the culture disagrees with those commands? Will you trust that he knows what's best, even when things are hard? Will you trust him at his word, even when he doesn't explain himself? Trusting God is part of God's good design for us. Now, in saying that, it's probably worth acknowledging. Adam and Eve failed to do this, but there was another who did not. Perhaps not coincidentally, in another garden, Jesus was tempted to not trust the Father. But instead of giving in like Adam and Eve, he instead doubled down on his trust by proclaiming, not my will, but yours be done. In doing so, he demonstrated for us, this is what it looks like to live a life of trust. He lived perfectly in God's good design. And the end result is that he ended up dying on another tree to set us free from the sin of Adam and from our own sin. And so while we may not always live perfectly trusting God, And while Adam and Eve certainly did not, there was one who did. And the way that we're set free from our sin is by trusting in him. When we recognize he has the perfect record of trust and obedience, and when we put our trust in him, it's then that we can be rescued. The way we acknowledge our trust in God now is by looking to Jesus. And acknowledging Jesus is enough. We don't need anything else. So listen, I know it's easy to get discouraged by the state of the world right now because there is destruction everywhere. The after picture from Genesis 3 is just kind of gnarly. But as Genesis 2 reminds us, it hasn't always been that way. And as the book of Revelation reminds us, it won't always be that way. So church, let me remind you this morning of God's good design. And that good design certainly involves the importance of work and certainly involves trusting God. But more importantly, in light of what we read in all of Scripture, I think we could say that that good design ultimately leads us to put our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who always trusted in the plan of the Father. So church, let us work hard. Let us also be a church that trusts God. But most importantly, let us be a church that looks to Jesus, the one who perfectly lived out God's design. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would help us to live in light of your good design. We pray that we would embrace, embrace the difficulty of this world while trusting you. Maybe embrace it the wrong way. We want to lament the difficulty of this world, but we do want to embrace our trust in you. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to walk that line. Lord, help us to lament the fact that things are not what they ought to be. We see the after picture, and it's awful. Help us to remember what things were like before and what they will one day be like again, and help us to live in light of that. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.